0: what's that? <laughs> right, right. It reminded me of 97. I don't know. if You guys heard that song before? I just had a little flashback there, but anyway. All right. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Hiawatha Church. My name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors. Glad you guys are here. We are uh, really going to dive right in today to Matthew 26. If you've been here for a while, you know that we're in a series right now on the Gospel of Matthew, which is the last, or the first book, rather, of the New Testament, uh, one of the first four gospel accounts, we call them, of the New Testament, tells the theological history of Christ's birth and his ministry, his life, especially his death and resurrection, and we are approaching the end. Uh, we're subtitled in this last series, which is the last three chapters, chapters 26 to 28, The Passion of the Christ, The Suffering of the Christ, which uh, is something Christ has already talked a lot about. If you've uh, been here, learned with the gospel accounts, even aside from being here, you know that Jesus has been bent on dying. He's predicted it. He said, the Old Testament predicted it. Uh, hundreds of years before I arrived, he was born into the world as the son of God. Uh, it was predicted, it was paved the way for, and now I'm here to fulfill it. And throughout his ministry, Jesus has been talking a lot about that and in word form, but also deed form, demonstrating it a lot as well. And narrative's great on that. We, we get, I think God in his wisdom wrote uh, his gospel into the world in the form of a lot of genre, different types of genres. So we have statements of truth and we have embodiments of truth and narrative as well, so we can see it, hear it, but also kind of feel it a bit as well. And we have uh, we've been in narrative, of course, in Matthew. Also, some teaching sections throughout it that are a little more prepositional. But today we're in this narrative, a section where Jesus has just gotten done praying about 12 hours or so before his death. So we're right on the cusp of him going to the cross. We're going to get to his arrest and his arrest today and his trials uh, next couple of weeks before we actually get to the crucifixion part in about a month or so here. Uh, But last week, I don't think I have this on slide, but last week we, in verse 46, it it says, Jesus says after his prayer, he says to his disciples in the garden of Gethsemane, rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand, Uh, referring to Judas Iscariot. So uh, on the, basically on the edge of the garden here in Gethsemane, Judas, one of his closest friends, uh, at least he thought he was, but he's the betrayer. Judas Iscariot comes with a band of individuals, a crowd of People with clubs and swords who want to arrest Christ they were sent by the chief priests of the Jews and the elders and they're here to, uh, to arrest him. So today's going to be uh, this idea of looking at uh, what it looks like to arrest the Son of God who created everything out of nothing and who's being arrested and treated like a criminal, like a robber here. Uh, a lot of uh, interesting things happen, a lot of drama, which again, if you add to it the idea that this, this is the, the reality, that it's, that it's not just a story, but it's history, it's not just based on a true story. It is a true story uh, that this, this level of drama heightens as well. And so I've had that in mind too. But Matthew 26, 47 to 56 uh, is today's passage. Let's read starting in verse 47. While he was still speaking, Judas came, uh, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man, seize him. Now stop right there just one second, just a little bit of context here. Uh, Judas needed to give the crowds a sign because it was dark. No you know, street lamps, uh, it's pitch black out in a garden, and there were 11 others with Jesus as well. So the crowds would have seen just kind of shadowy figures, 12 of them, hard to distinguish. And some of them didn't even know what Jesus looked like. They were just there following orders. So Jesus says, the one I kiss is the Christ. He's Jesus of Nazareth. He's the one you are. To seize. And note that Judas says that too. Seize him immediately. One of the accounts elsewhere in the New Testament says that. Immediately lay hands on him and and seize him, which indicates that Judas is expecting Jesus to run, probably. And that's important. We know it doesn't happen, as we'll see here, but it's important that that's his expectation and that Jesus does not fulfill it. We'll see how that plays out here. Verses 49 and following. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. Jesus said to him, Friend, Do what you came to do. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I sat in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. All right. So here's our uh, big question today, like I posed before. What does it look like to arrest the Son of God? Who, of course, is innocent, And who is, as we've been saying throughout the series, orchestrating this entire event. That will become even more clear today as well. And then relatedly, what do we learn about the gospel of Jesus Christ from this event? Which is, it's been happening. Jesus says the gospel is near. It's at hand, remember? Part of his teaching is the gospel is, is here with my arrival. But it's also not really here yet either. Because the new covenant, the New Testament, God's grace in full, doesn't come until the cross happens until sin is atoned for, until death is overwhelmed and overcome. And so it's kind of here, but kind of not. And so what do we learn about the gospel ahead of time here? Just 12 hours from now, the gospel, the New Testament, the new covenant, God covenanting with and relating with sinful people like us coming into the world. What do we learn about it from this important interaction with sinful uh, people like us? And so what I want to do is move from, uh, we do this a lot here, but move from the general to the specific. And so we'll look at some general things going on here that, that talk about God's characteristics and portray them. We'll move to the specific as well, just the bigger how. How, how, does, how does this actually occur? How does God's grace here and patience and his ability to absorb injustice really find fulfillments a little bit later in the story? And, and the passage itself caters to that beautifully. It starts general, and if you don't know about the cross, you don't know how, how about how God became one of us to die as one of us in our place, at the earlier parts of the passage, you might be scratching your head a little bit more and saying, but how can a holy God be quite like that? How does he, in fact, make his enemies his friends and, uh, and so forth? So we'll, we'll talk about that more specifically later, but we'll start generally. Uh, the first thing then is looking at this idea of teacher or Lord, friend or foe, from verses 49 and 50, which again says, and he came up to Jesus, Judas did at once and said, greetings Rabbi, and he kissed him. Jesus said to him, friend, do what you came to do. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and, and seized him. So a couple things, especially from verse, uh, verse 49, well, I guess and 50 as well. But first, what Judas says here is, is greetings, rabbi. The first thing I want you to see is what, what he says. is He greets him with a kiss, a common greeting of the day, but he calls him rabbi, which means teacher. And on one level, that's incidental uh, because we know Jesus was, in fact, a teacher in part. He was a leader and many other people called him rabbi in the gospel accounts without Jesus correcting him. So he was okay with that title on one level. People like Peter and others who were healed by him or who listened to his teaching called him rabbi or teacher as well throughout the gospel account. So on one level that's incidental. But with this said, as we've been saying throughout this series a lot, Jesus is not just a teacher. He's actually much, 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 much More than that. Not something we just add on to the idea of being a teacher, as well, that's what he was at the core. Not at the core. At the core, he was actually something quite different. And it's no mistake here that Judas, the one betraying him, in one sense apparently sees him as just a teacher. He calls him rabbi. And probably in his eyes, a very bad one at that, one worth betraying for 30 pieces of silver. In comparison to, say, someone like Peter, who earlier in Matthew confessed that he was the Christ, which means the Messiah, which means the anointed one, which means the promised one of God who was going to right all wrongs in the world when all fell to the curse back in Genesis 3, earlier in the story, in the Old Testament. The Son of God, or Lord or Master of all. A few weeks ago, Spencer noted in a sermon in Matthew 26, I want to just revisit this quick. It says at the Last Supper. In Matthew 26, 21 to 22, and also verse 25, a contrast occurs. In the first part here, it says, And as they were eating, Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him, one after the other, Is it I, Lord? Using the phrase Lord or or Master. Judas, who would betray him later, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? He said to him, You have said so. So again, incidental, maybe to a degree, but at the same time, not really. Yes, he's teaching, but it's a question here. It's a difference, a contrast we're supposed to pick up on. And it's an issue of how do we view him? How do we label him? How do we name the Christ? And yes, he's teaching. He is a teacher in one sense of the word. But he's also, if you've been following along with his ministry and know a little bit about what he says about issues and things he confronts or teaches about, he also claims to be the answers to these questions he raises as well, which teachers don't do, right? Like, a teacher teaches something... They're pointing outside of themselves to a fact, or to a mathematical equation, or to a historical event, or something, and say, "Know these things. These things happened out here, and they get answered and addressed out here." But when Jesus addresses them, he says, "I am the answer to them." It's kind of like a math teacher saying, "Solve for x. I am x." Right? It's basically. And then, but think about what that would be like. You say, "Well, what?" This is why it says in Mark 1 that Jesus taught with an authority that no one else ever did throughout all of history. And they listen more closely because he taught in that capacity. So, I am the way, he says. I am the bread. He doesn't say, I'm teaching you about how to resurrect yourself later with good ways of living. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. I am the gate. I am the door. The Gospel of John has, if you want to note this sometime when reading the Gospel of John, there are a lot of I am statements where he says, I am these things, not I am pointing you to them like a good teacher does, but I'm actually doing something like a crazy teacher would. I'm saying, I am the the solution to your problems. I'm not telling you about them so much as I am embodying them. I'm going to be them uh, for you. So he's friend, teacher, guide, but he's more than this. He's Savior. He's Lord. He's sin slayer. It's the spirit, really, of Jesus' question in, in Matthew 16, which I'll read again here. This is going back a few months, but... Earlier in the story when Jesus asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is, that that I am, that Jesus is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, prophet figures, others Jeremiah or another one of the prophets. So basically they say you're a prophet type. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. So if we apply what what Jesus is saying here to this week's passage, and actually just going back for a second, if if we say... He's a prophet, we're kind of right but mostly wrong with that answer. Because he is prophetic in that, and he's a prophet in that he speaks for God, but he is the prophet in that he actually is the Word of God. He's the final thing, the ultimate thing God is saying to the world in I love you, in I've got it all under control, in that I'm, I'm dying to right all of those wrongs, to reverse the curse and to take sin and death away from your life and the life of all who live, from this, this cursed earth. I'm here to fix it and start to reverse it. So he is that ultimate prophet. So he's more than that then. He is, as Peter says, the Christ. The but there, that conjunction on that second to last line is key. Because Jesus is saying, by saying but, he's acknowledging that's not the right answer to say I'm just a prophet. Because the, the, the but is, well, what about you? I'm the Christ, the son of the living God. It's, it's a different response. You're prophetic. He's a prophet, but much, much more. He's the promised one. He's the son of the living God, which makes him God as the scriptures say elsewhere, in flesh as well. So if you apply that way of thinking to Matthew 26, it's the same idea. If we say that Jesus is teacher or rabbi, uh, we're kind of right but mostly wrong because he's so much more than that. And if our comparison to defining teacher is other types of teachers, he's actually not really a teacher because teachers, you know, again, do this over here and point to these things over here, but Jesus is doing this all the time, bringing people to himself as the ultimate solution, which only just really weird, crazy teachers do. So he's not a teacher in the strictest sense of the word. He is Savior, Christ, Son of God, Sin Slayer. It's also noteworthy uh, that we only see the word rabbi or teacher used once in the New Testament in reference to Jesus after the cross and empty tomb occur. I want to make sure that's clear. So after the tomb and the empty tomb occurs, so after Jesus dies and is raised again, only once do we see Jesus referred to as as Rabbi, and that's Mary, right after in the garden, right after Jesus walks out of the tomb, and, and there's this this confrontation, there's this meeting of the risen Christ. But after that, you never see Jesus referred to by the church once as teacher or Rabbi. It never says in the Book of Acts, for example, that the teacher said this. So we're, we're gathering to worship the teacher or we're gathering to worship the rabbi follow the ways of the rabbi. You never see that type of language used. What's much more common is just he is the Christ. He's the son of God. He's the savior is, is probably the most common one. But the son of God, the Messiah, the promised king who is here to reign over our lives and over all the cosmos. More, it's more in line with Thomas, another one of the disciples, when he addresses Jesus post-resurrection and says, not rabbi, but my Lord and my God. That's a much more, that's more in step with what you, this progression from rabbi teacher to Christ Savior Lord uh, post-cross that you see because of what he did and because of how worthy he was not just to be acknowledged as some kind of teacher with good ideas, but worshipped, worshipped. When Thomas says, Jesus, you are God, and he worships them, Jesus does not correct him. It's right to be called God. It's right to be called Savior. It's right for him to be separated from all the teachers who have ever lived, all the other prophets, and say, you are, you are kind of like them, but you far, 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 far fall above them as well as uh, much greater, and coming for a different purpose, to be what they pointed to. All the teachers and prophets of the Old Testament, they pointed something outside of themselves, and it was me. So I'm that ultimate teacher, ultimate prophet, more than that, more than that savior. So again, it's a question of, uh, who is he to us? That's the ultimate question. And we see it's posed, posed here in Matthew 16. Who am I to other people? Who am I to you? Jesus says, is he just a teacher? We consult every once in a while to live our lives a little bit better and get some advice on living. Or is he Savior who does everything for us? Not just some things for us sometimes when we're kind of in trouble, but is he absolutely everything to us? That's that Savior uh, King idea, and if he's just a teacher, if we kind of bring this really, really down to our level here, what I want to get back to with, with Judas calling him Rabbi specifically over and against what the rest of the disciples label him, even pre cross, is if he's just a teacher, we're never really going to receive him. If he's just a teacher to us, we'll never fully. Re- I heard someone say the other day that either Jesus does everything for us, or he does nothing for us. You can't have Jesus do something for you but not everything. Because what that says, what that mindset says is he's good, but I add to him. I don't need him for the... either he does everything for you, saves you from everything, accomplishes all of your good works even ahead of time, saves you from everything in the world, in your life, all of your enemies, or he will do nothing. Jesus never leaves it open to us to say that you can kind of have me a little bit here and there. Consult me when you need a, a life coach or something. Like you never get that idea from Christ. He, he, is, he is much, much more. We'll come back to that. But second here in verse 50, uh, moving on, note Jesus' response to the kiss. Friend, do what you came to do. Which tells us a couple of things. First, that he's not running away, right? As Judas probably expected. Uh, he's calm, he's collected. He's expectant of this. He predicted it. And he's knowledgeable that the scriptures, the Old Testament Scriptures and prophecies about it must be fulfilled. So this is my plan. My arrest must occur because my death must occur uh, after it. And this was really important to see his poise and his posture here because if there was any sense of hesitation in Jesus or any desire to run or surprise that, oh, there's Judas, didn't see that one coming. Any sense of that at all, it, we could kind of insert in the this story this, this question of, was the cross part of the plan or not? He's surprised by it. He's wanting to get away from it and, and run away from his betrayer and his arresters. But we would not see it as, at least as readily, if not at all, as a part of the divine plan. Much more easily would we see it as, as a plan B, something God kind of backed into or something Jesus didn't really, we at least say he didn't have control of it, right? It'd be, it, the, the posture here is really important to understand. Is that he, Judas said, "Seize him immediately before he runs, Jesus says, do what you came to do. This has to happen. My, my death must occur. It has to occur. If any kingdom of any benefit for people is going to come into the world. So that's the first thing. It's more noteworthy here, though, I think, is that in his, in his posture, in his calmness, Jesus calls Judas friend. It's amazing that he does this. I mean, it's actually barely fathomable that this is Jesus' response to, to Judas that the God of the universe think about this the God of the universe addresses his Satan incited betrayer with such gentleness and such words not to excuse his sin but to embody the fact that this is how patient and gentle and slow to anger God is this is what he's like if you, if you know what he's like be reminded if you don't know what God is like and are wondering that if you're new to Christianity in the Bible understand that we get to know what God is like by looking at his son who resembles him, who actually is him, the second God of the, the second person of the Trinity, Son of God. We look to Him to understand what our God is, is like. And look at his response. I mean, it's to the point where we need this, you guys. We need this kind of stuff statement-wise, but also narrative-wise, to the point where if you're having a bad day, on any level, if you're steeped up to here in sin, if all seems lost. And when it does in your life, if it's not now, it will. At least we can think in moments like this, well, it, at least Jesus called Judas a friend here. <laughs> at least that happened, right? And then project that onto our experience that this is what God is, this is what he's like. And, and we too, if not but have a betrayer as a Christian, uh, Have we have still, this is what God saves us from, saves us from Judas-like tendencies and, and realities, not just tendencies, realities, of staging that coup against God by saying, I don't need you, I'm my own God, I'm rebelling against the ultimate king. That's what sin is. It's not just not committing adultery, it's saying God's not enough, God's not necessary, God might exist, but I'm okay without him. That's that's ultimate rebellion, And, and biblically, that's the ultimate definition of sin, is being given unto our own ways of living, and God's judgment being giving people over to to such things. But Jesus, in, in, the, in the throes of all of that, in the, in the throes of looking at an enemy, even, and saying, friend, with such posture and such gentleness and, and not being reactionarily angry, but slow, slow to anger. It's right for him to be angry against sin, but he's slow to anger is such, such, such good news because it's like us. Jesus looks at us and says, friend, I've died for you. Everything's going to be okay for the rest of your life. No matter how much you suffer, I walked out of the tomb. That happened. I've got it under control. And And I'm making my enemies my friends. Not good people great, but dead people living and enemies friends. Romans 5 gets at that. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we're reconciled, Shall we have hope for eternal life or a bodily resurrection? Shall we be saved by his life? In Psalm 145, this is what God is like. God is gracious. He gives to people who are undeserving. That's what the God of the universe is like. He's that generous and that gracious. And he's merciful and he's slow to anger. But what is he quick to do? He's quick to be loving and shows steadfast, unrelenting, just impressive love that's, that's unprecedented and so that's what he's like. And that's what we're seeing. We see it statement-wise here. It's good. What's, what's great is we get this and this. We see Jesus with a posture of, you're my enemy, I'm going to make you a friend. I, I, what I'm about to do hours from now is make enemies, my enemies, my friends, my sons and daughters, ones close to me. Isn't that incredible? And this is what he's doing in the world. That He's doing this too, Right? I mean, how often do we get versions of Christianity that says, that's the reality, we're enemies, but God is not speaking or embodying these truths. Rather, he's hoping that we traverse the chasm, right, or climb the ladder, but it's on us. But Jesus is saying here, it's actually on, on me and what I'm doing. I have the authority to call people friends who hate me. I have the authority to reconcile with my death, wicked enemy people to a loving God. Like I do that. It's all on, all on his shoulders. So when we're stuck in sin, I think we've sinned our way out of grace, just having a bad day, these are the things that we have to re- remember and recall to mind that Jesus spoke to Judas with such words and such clarity, such posture, such ability to be slow to anger. Praise be to God, because no one else in the world is slow to anger like this, but the God of the universe. when we're constantly sinning, we need this type of God. We're toast, right? We're toast. God's quick to anger, toast, I'm toast, done, if God's fast to be angry. But if God's slow to anger, that's a whole other story altogether. So praise be to God, this is true. Second thing is, uh, Peter, uh, put your sword back in its place. So Peter's not named here, but we know from a different account that it is Peter who cuts the ear off of the servants of the high priest. Verse 51 again. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, Put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father and he will at once send me more than twelve legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must, must be so? So first note here again that Jesus, like we said before, doesn't run, but nor does he fight physically like Jesus does, or like like Peter does, right? So we see, what we're seeing is a misunderstanding, Peter's misunderstanding of what the Christ should be all about, what God's kingdom, how it's going to come into the world, juxtaposed to Jesus getting clarity on why he's here, what his mission is. We see see both what it's not and what it is set next to each other. So Peter fights with a sword, then he runs away, which, what does that tell us? It tells us that he believes the kingdom of God hinges on Jesus' survival, right? The kingdom of God and all of its blessings hinges, all that Christ is doing in the world hinges on his survival. And it expands with physical force. Because beliefs lead to actions, right? Beliefs always lead to actions. So his beliefs are leading to pulling out a sword and going, just beginning to go to war Christ to essentially try and stop the cross from happening. That's what Peter's doing. And Peter's, Peter's a master at trying to stop the cross from happening. He's just really good at it. He's always doing it. Like back, if you remember, after Jesus starts to talk about more explicitly about his death and his resurrection, that it must be so. And he got very specific about it back in Matthew 16. Actually, I think I have this. Um, after Jesus predicted his death and resurrection, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord. It shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You're a hindrance to me, for you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but the things of man. Also in uh, John 13, uh, when Jesus is washing the disciples' feet, remember what Peter says there? He says, Not me, Lord. Like I should be washing your feet. You're the master. You're the, the disciple. You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. I should wash your feet. Jesus' response is, if I don't wash your feet, you have absolutely no part with me whatsoever. You are rejecting me by not allowing me to wash your feet. And so what both of these things testify to, linked up with Matthew 26, today's passages, Peter is constantly not understanding the way of the cross. He's, he's fighting to stop the cross with a sword. And earlier, he's saying, you can't die. F- far be it from you, Lord. This will never happen. Or with the feet washing, I sh- you should be the one, or I should be the one to wash your feet, uh, not you. It's the same, It's the spirit of that is alive in Peter's misguided actions. So, Jesus, by saying, put away your sword, again tells us that the kingdom of God expands a different way, the way of the cross, via his death and via his re- resurrection. And Jesus says here, if, if force, with, with the whole angels comment, if force was needed, I'd call down 12 legions of angels. One legion for each of us, you know, because there's 12 people there. Everyone gets a legion of angels, and it'd be over before it began. If force was needed, I called on the angels rather than have you, Peter, swipe ineffectively at an ear of a servant of a high priest, right? It's not doing anything anyway. I call angels down, but that's not why I came. So often we forget this. We forget this. Peter's forgetting this. Disciples don't understand this yet. No dots are really being connected here at all until after it actually happens. But that that theme just spills forward into history as well. We try to make the Christ about something else other than his death and other than his resurrection. Again, he's saying here, put your sword away. Let me expand my kingdom in my own way that will actually benefit you. Because how are the scriptures supposed to be fulfilled if I don't do this? In a different account in Luke, it says, it adds more to this story. And says that Jesus heals the servant's ear. So after it's cut off, Jesus says, Put away your sword, and he touches the ear of the servant, and it just rematerializes. It comes back on. It's healed perfectly, which gives us just cool, first of all, if that happens, but uh, it, it gives us a glimpse into the reality that his arrest will ultimately lead to healing for those who presently hate him. So presently, his enemies, his arrest, will, this is where it's going. See, we're gazing at something. It's this little hint in the narrative that miraculous healing on a much greater level than than ear healing is right around the corner. It's coming. We're about to gaze at the ultimate cancer destroyer with a cure for inner sin. He will rematerialize our hearts uh, when he dies for the sins of the world and makes connection with God possible. So then the question is, I've, I've been hinting at it as we've gone along here, but, but the question is, as, I, as I kind of started with is, is how, right? God, God's general characteristics here of, of making enemies friends and of being slow to anger as two examples of the many, at this point, if we don't, if we don't know about the cross, there are question marks. How does that actually happen? Is Jesus just embodying these things? Great way, by the way, to read your Bibles. When you see a general characteristic in the Old Testament or the pre-cross ministry of Christ, always ask, how is that attribute fulfilled and shown brighter on the cross? Because it always is. God is working in a way, generally, in a more of a cryptic manner in the Old Testament, even here in the earlier parts of Matthew, that have more clarity on the cross. So ask, how is God's patience shown on the cross? How is God's grace shown? General grace and mercy that you see shown to people on a lesser level made more manifest and just bigger and awesome on the cross. And the enemies and friends things too, which we'll talk about here in a second. But So the answer again, it, of course, is the cross, but this is specifically how it comes up. So these are our questions. How is Jesus is, can, going to be ushered in? How is this put, put your sword away, Peter, principle, finest, ultimate, where is it heading? Then the answer is here, to use this language of this passage, Jesus treated as a sinner, as a robber for us. Verse 55, it says, And at that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I sat in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. So what's happening in verse 55 here is Jesus is essentially claiming, we already know this, but he's claiming to be innocent and helping to expose the illegality of what the Jews are doing by saying, hey, I'm a public figure. I've been publicly ministering and teaching in the temple courts and around Jerusalem, the smaller villages outside Jerusalem as well. You've known where I am. Why didn't you arrest me there beforehand? Why all the secrecy? Why why arrest me in stealth? Why all the darkness? What's going on? And he knows the answer, but the, the, the question is, why are you operating this way? And the answer is fear, the fear of people. The Jews don't want to raise this ruckus during Passover festival and so forth, but it also says they're trying to expedite this quietly. If Jesus was guilty, they, they wouldn't have to worry about any kind of uproar. They don't have to worry about doing things by the book. But they're not doing things by the book. They're, they're doing things in, in, in an unjust way here to arrest him in stealth in the dark. And so what that tells us, in kind of a backdoor way, is Jesus is innocent, completely innocent. They have really no basis for arresting him, but they do it nonetheless. So, he's innocent, we just know that anyway, uh, from many other passages, of course, he's the son of God, and we just know that generally, but here it's, again, testified to. He's innocent, but he's being treated as a criminal and a robber specifically a robber, verse 55. So the point here is that there's, there should be a level of dramatic irony and just ridiculousness about this that we're supposed to take note of. The creator of the universe, the creator of the universe, is being condemned unjustly and counted among petty thieves. Isn't that incredible? This is what God did. God became like us and just become like us, but he was counted as some kind of petty thief, crucified as a barbarian in the Roman day, among criminals. And we know later on he's going to be crucified with criminals on his right and left side. So literally among criminals, but here being treated as a robber. In a different account in John 18, uh, it says that um, when Jesus answers the crowds, when they ask his identity and say, are you Jesus of Nazareth in the garden? It says, it recounts him saying, I am he. And right after that, it says, they all withdrew and fell to the ground at the power of his word. They all just fell over. (laughs) Then they got up and arrested him after that, which is kind of weird, right? Like, what would that be like to be blown over by this guy's words and then say, well, I got to follow orders, right? And then kind of go up and sort of handcuff the guy or whatever they did. They seized him. Strange, right? But just a cool moment of it's clear. The posture again here is we got to understand this is God willingly giving himself over, not being surprised by Judas and and the arrest. You guys see that? It reminded me, actually, of, you guys seen Star Trek, the latest Star Trek movie? Anybody? Into the Darkness? Two of you? Three of you? Okay. <laughs> you guys. There's always two. No, I know there's probably more. <clears throat> but uh, in that scene, if, you, if you've seen it, where Khan is clearly the expression of, not just expression, but the, the, the more, the stronger individual, right, the more intelligent individual, and he gives himself over to Kirk and Spock. You guys remember this, remember this part? Anyway. So when I had just thought of that, because it's like, in that moment, you're saying, John clearly has a plan to give himself over. And he does, right, in the movie. He has a plan to give himself over to be arrested, uh, which I won't go into, but it's a good movie. You should see it. But anyway, he has a plan. Uh, it's, it's the same here. Christ has a plan. He's the stronger individual. He blows people over with his words because who can stand at the great I am saying, I am he, right? And yet he goes like this. He gives his hands over, and he willingly goes like a sheep to the slaughter to be crucified for you and for me. That's love. That's power. That's the type of battle and the way he's fighting for us in this passage. So that's what we're seeing. Willingness to go under arrest to fulfill what God, the way God promised, I'm going to fix everything. This is the way. This is the how. The the sense to which we get for God making enemies friends. This is the how. Being Slow to anger generally. This is specifically how he's patient in his love and slow to anger. Isaiah 53 in the Old Testament says, one of the many places, we could go for this, this beforehand idea, is, uh, is that, that the suffering servants of God, the one God promised to come into the world to, again, right all those wrongs and to, and to restore and to bring healing, was numbered with the transgressors. This is Jesus. Yet he bore the sin of many. He bore the sin of many. And he makes intercession for the transgressors. And then in the New Testament elsewhere, It says uh, in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So Jesus knew no sin, but he somehow on the cross became sin. He absorbed it. He he became that ultimate sacrifice who died in the place of, of sinners. So that in that event, or in that great act of love, we... The sinners might become righteous. We might become washed. We might become clean. This is how God is remaining just, but also expressing his mercy at the same time. They come together and just kiss perfectly on the cross. God's just genius in this. How He he is not just coming to our rescue and glorifying his name, but he's also able to express all of his attributes simultaneously because sin is being dealt with. It's just being poured out on Jesus. And mercy and love and goodness and patience and being slow to anger, all of those things that are also true about God are also being expressed simultaneously at the exact same time. All right, so what do we take away from this? In conclusion here, in some gospel application points, I have two major ones. Uh, the first is always the most important uh, in what we'll call ourselves back to as, as the church of God, the people of God who gather tirelessly around this truth, and that is Believe. In the Savior Christ, not not the teacher Christ, but the Savior Christ, the one who makes his enemies his friends, the one who's slow to anger, the Son of God, who tells Peter to put away his sword, that he might in fact be arrested unto the cross and die for the sins of the world. And, and relatedly here, rest in the fact that even amidst people's best efforts, we're seeing Judas and Peter stuff here happen, right? So even amidst people's best efforts to either figuratively I guess, or literally, maybe in Judas's case, but figuratively for us, kill Jesus like Judas, or make him about some other non-cross-related agenda, like Peter. Peter's about Christ here, kind of right, but not the cross. I want a different. I want to manufacture a different type of Christ that I think, should, if I were God, this is how I would send my Christ into the world. And so he seeks to stop over and over again the cross from happening. But amidst all of that, Jesus keeps marching on, right? Resolved, resisting satanic deception, temptation rather, and deception, to go the other way, to take the, way of the, to take the non-cross route, bent on being treated as a petty thief and actually becoming sin, though he knew no sin, that in him and in what he did for us, we might be saved. We might become righteous or washed or clean. So again, that question is, who is he to you? Is he your savior or simply a teacher that you consult every once in a while to figure out how to live better? More the life coach idea. That's always the question. And, and, and what, what was his mission at the same time? Also, the, the secondary question, right? Is who, what, was he, what was he about? Because we tend to, even as Christians, we always tend to want, want to do, might believe the cross, or maybe not, With version of Christianity, that's not really about the cross, it's about some kind of political agenda or it's about some other kind of way of living or something like that. But we see that, what Jesus says, when we start to cut at ears to make that possible, Jesus says, put it back in the sheath. You have no idea what you're doing. No idea. Maybe well-intentioned, but your version of me that is crossless is wicked and satanic and needs to be thrown out completely. Rejected. And I need to be embraced as not guru-teacher who must survive, but savior who must die in this manner to save. If I don't die, If, if I don't wash your feet, you have no part with the God of the universe. There's no way to get back because the insurmountable wall of sin and darkness still stands erect before you. So that's the first thing. Wherever you guys are, believe. For the first time, if you don't know Christ yet, the call is not to wash yourself, but to believe in Christ as a messy person. He does the washing. He dies for your sins. He is slow to anger with you and loves you and went all the way, the full measure to the cross, to make your reconciliation, as an enemy, your reconciliation with God possible, just like the rest of us who already believe. The second is uh, reflect a God who's like this. Reflect a God who's like this. And This goes outside the passage a little. Uh, We do this semi-frequently here at Hiawatha. Um, Even though it's not explicitly mentioned, it's alluded to elsewhere in the New Testament. So um, when you see principles then like this occur, in the Christ, in Jesus, uh, we, we link on to them as, as later hallmarks of Christian living because they become that for the church because Christ himself lives in Christians and compels us to embody God's grace in these types of uh, similar ways. Not to be saved by them, but because, again, the Christ himself, we believe, part of the gospel, the good news, is that he washes our sin but also infuses up us with his own Holy Spirit to enable holy living so that we can't boast in either. We didn't do anything to deserve the washing. He, it was a free offer of grace. Nor do we do anything to, uh, t- to live rightly post-conversion. Like he's actually compelling this and, and doing these acts within us so that we can't boast another side of the, the gospel coin, as it were. So here's some of the questions that we see come up in Christ perfectly that we can ask, are you Christ-filled Follower of Jesus, imperfectly but intentionally seeking to reflect these things about about him. Questions are this, among others, these are the biggies. Are you slow to anger when offended or quick? Do you love your enemies and not simply tolerate them? Because remember, Jesus' enemy love was not tolerance kind of love, it was active, dying for, sacrificial love. Are you patient in your love for others? Do you absorb injustice when you're treated unfairly and misunderstood and not react angrily? The question here ultimately is, what kind of Jesus are you portraying to the world? People know you're a Christian, they'll hear from you, and they'll get a sense for who Christ is because he lives in you and me, and especially us in community. When they see us loving each other, they'll get a much better picture of very different people, loving other very different people, but unified around the love of God and the gospel, they will get such a, such a picture, such a glimpse of, of God and the gospel that they won't get anywhere else. They have to ultimately hear, but the question is, are, are, are our lives consistent with uh, what, we're, what we're seeing here? So ask, ask yourself that. Those who are filled with Christ, and if you're not, forget this second part, because you can't do this unless you're not a Christian. You don't have the ability just think of the first part for today. If you're a Christian, though, are these things true? And the answer, of course, for all of us is, well, no, we're not doing that at all, right? But in one sense, maybe by God's grace, there's some semblance of, of, of goodness and possibility there, right, that we need to pray about in community and seek to ask for forgiveness of God from and other people if we're, if we're at odds with them, especially in the church, and have some kind of fight amongst us. Reconcile that, but at the same time, uh, you know, again, God is able, and he will, and he does do this. Churches are to be, ha- not perfect, but hospitals for sinners, but also havens from a dead and dying world that just does not experience this stuff. Does not have anger that's slow, but it's very, very quick. Enemy love, are you kidding me? I mean, where else is enemy love possible outside of the cross? About, outside of a, the reality that God has done that kind of love for for the world. It's just simply not possible. It never happens. It barely happens in a Christian's life, you know, but the only hope we have to embody these things is is to look not so much at them, but to look primarily at Matthew 26 narrative kind of stuff and say, that really happened. I really believe it. It actually did something for me. It's actually gospel truth, And, and and we start to gaze at it more, and it becomes more instinctual or a side benefit to the way that we believe, we just start to live that way. Uh, by God's grace. We can't boast in it. So if we just point to, if we just say try harder not to be not to be angry, or at least to be more slow in our anger, it just won't work. It just doesn't work. It's law. And Christ is clear on that. He says, when, when I come into the world, there's laws, but they imprison sin. What I'm here to do is set you free from the law of sin and death, and law in general, and to be another offer of grace that actually does work. And so, he saved. He makes this type of living possible. With that said, again, practically think about this throughout your week in community, individually, and think about how can I, to my coworkers, my the other students at my school, uh, my neighbors, my parents, my kids, my friends, how, how can I embody what Jesus Christ first did in the world for me 2,000 years ago so that people would get a sense for it, they would see it, and that they would ultimately hear it. And, and if you don't know this, understand that we see, we've seen people come to Christ here at Hiawatha who are first attracted to this before they believe in the word of Christ. We've seen that happen here, and many other churches have, of course, as well. We've seen that, and understand that that's the way many people are going to come to faith. They're going to see that type of living first in the church, Christian living first, and be attracted to it, and then you have an opportunity to say, let me tell you about a God who is like that, much more than I am to you, much more than I am to my other brother or sister in Christ, but on a much higher spiritual level, and then you start to preach. Then they put their faith in something more rock solid. Then they're converted. So under, believe in the power of God through, through preaching, teaching, speaking, encouraging, sharing with word, but also secondarily in deed form. We have to have both. Christ is all about both. And so you think about your life. Think about both happening concurrently. Again, individually and um, in community to the glory of God. Let's pray. God, thanks uh, so much again for the gospel of Matthew 26, the gospel ahead of time, the gospel beforehand, which reminds us of your, not just your love, but your patient love, your enemy love, making enemies friends and how you do that so perfectly. Also, uh, your steadfast love that it never ends and just your perfect love and patience and being slow to anger. All that, God, we see on the cross. We thank you for it. Thank you for constantly correcting us and we all in some ways, whether it's a past thing or a present thing or a future thing or kind of all of them for us, we all have at one point or are seeking to cut off the ears of the servant by making you about something else other than the cross. And all along you're saying, put the sword away. I am the Passover lamb. I am the ultimate sacrifice and the high priest. I am the intercessor for the transgressors. My blood must be spilt God, so I pray that you would just reconfigure our way of thinking, uh, if and when, because we all will, but if and when we need that spirit, do that. Remind us of what the, who the Christ is and what the Christ is really about, his true mission, and subsequently the mission of the church, which is to tell people about this great event primarily, secondarily, uh, to live it out by the strength that you provide, uh, to show a world uh, what the new earth is going to be like, uh, imperfectly, but we can give a hint of that, so... Pray for that and many other things too, God, that you might be putting on people's minds right now or will throughout this week. Uh, Be at work, Jesus, and thank you so much for going the full measure all the way to the cross for us and being so resolved, so fulfilling of the scriptures, so much the Lamb of God who dies for the sins of the world. Praise be to God. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Let's stand and respond together.